Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to today's podcast. I just have a few things I've got to run over. As always, I try and make it really quick. If you haven't already joined us on the Facebook discussion group, then go and do that. That's where you can ask your questions. That's where I post the podcast so that you know that it's been updated. So you can find that just by searching on Facebook for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group and just putting in a request to join. The other thing I haven't mentioned before on this podcast is you can get a free engagement guide. It's a document that I wrote and it just kind of briefly outlines what engagement is and just gives you a first kind of some starting steps to get you going. You can get that for free. Just go to www.barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide and the only thing to be aware of with that as well because i don't want you getting upset is you're going to be added to my email list if you sign up for that but i promise you i'm not going to spam you or anything like that all i do is i send out emails either with well usually with stories of what i'm up to or just something that's interesting and often with links to uh, the podcast and you can unsubscribe anytime um, and yeah, I've had some really good uh, reviews and feedback on the engagement guide as well. A lot of people have really enjoyed that. And yeah, it's a good introduction. And eventually, I'm working on turning that into a larger book. Um, but but yeah, so that's that. The other thing is, this podcast is sponsored by Butternut Box. Butternut Box is a really cool, healthy, natural dog food based in the UK, fresh ingredients. It's not got any of the crap in it. It's got a five-star rating on All About Dog Food. And the best thing for I know is going to resonate with a lot of you is it's really good for dogs that are fussy eaters and have sensitive stomachs. So if you want to get a 75% discount on your first box, then go to buttonupbox.com slash nickbenger. And yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. I think once you've got your first box, you're, you'll be hooked. It's, uh, it's really good stuff. So yeah, into what we're doing today. Today, I'm talking to Ken McCourt. Ken has been training animals since 1986. He specializes in animals with behavior problems. He's been developing and operating animal assistance programs at Akron's Children's Hospital since 1992. And he works closely with Wolf Park in Indiana, where he does training with their wolves and their other animals. And you can tell that Ken is a real animal guy because as we record this podcast, you can hear his birds and his other animals in the background, which I hope isn't too off-putting for you. I found it quite endearing. I uh, Yeah, it sounds like he's in a rainforest or something. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Good to be here. So... This whole thing of animal-assisted interventions, that's obviously quite a complicated term. What does that actually mean? Well, it started out being called animal-assisted therapy uh, many years ago. I go back into the 1980s with this subject. Uh, and people that studied the human-animal bond um, were very interested in, in that subject. And then uh, it kind of morphed over the years into different levels of how people and their pets interacted with different populations. So um, most of what people do uh, with their pets is actually called animal-assisted activity. Uh, and that's like anything from, you know, letting your uh, somebody read to your pet to, you know, bringing him into a, a nursing home or a hospital to cheer people up or um, anything along those lines. Um, they were designed more um, as an intervention that was just to make the people feel better. And although that is therapeutic, it technically isn't therapy in a medical environment. Um, people that do animal-assisted therapy are usually working in conjunction with a physical therapist, uh, 
occupational therapist, a rec therapist, a speech therapist, and they're using the animal as a modality for some kind of treatment. In other words, they have a plan on what they want to do, and they're going to use the, the handler and the animal to get that, that intervention, whatever it is, implemented. Um, in, the, in the children's hospital I work in, um, our, we have teams, um, some of our teams that go into the physical therapy department and are part of treatment modalities. In other words, they uh, uh, maybe the patient needs uh, some more upper body strength, and so they're going to throw the ball, and the dog is going to retrieve the ball. Well, you're going to get a child to do that a lot longer with a dog than you will with another human being. All right, okay. So, so there's a difference then between therapy and interventions. Well, it, therapies are interventions. There's a difference between activity and therapy. Because I think that yes. I think that most people will be familiar with like uh, pets as therapy dogs, like a, a, you, which you kind of mentioned. You know, where dogs are going into schools or they're going into uh, like retirement homes and and comforting people more than anything. Exactly, and they're making them feel better. And you know it's a touch, you know they're touching nature, so to speak, uh, by having a, a living creature uh, in their room with them, and it certainly is benefiting them. Uh, but for in order for it to really be a therapy, there needs to be somebody there that's measuring something. You know, if they're actually looking at the heart rate of the patient or the blood pressure of the patient, and they're using the animal to get them to relax or to be more at home in the environment, then that's a, that's a therapy intervention. Uh, but most of, most of the time people are just doing, and I don't want to say just because there is not a, a, a degree like one is better than another, but a lot of times people are doing um, animal-assisted activity, um, and depending on where they are, they may be calling it a they may be calling it therapy. So, so with the interventions, like you were talking about, you know, getting children to throw a ball, you know, if they have uh, muscular issues or, or whatever it is, um, what's the story behind that? Is is there a lot of evidence to support that, or is is it just anecdotal oh. at this point? No, no, no. If if anything, that's that's the avenue where we do have evidence because they're. They're keeping charts and they're measuring progress and they're they're looking at you know the benefit um, to the patient uh, specifically by using the animal as a as a modality. Uh, years ago, uh, when this pediatric hospital I work with uh, started their program back in the early 1900s, 1990s. Um, we started to work with uh, outpatient chemo uh, um, recipients. These were children that were going home, but they would come in to get their chemo treatments. And uh, they started to add dogs to that um, treatment modality because a lot of the kids, they were reluctant to come in. They would come in, but they were typically late uh, because the, you know the treatment was going to make them sick, and they knew that. And when we started to use dogs as a modality to encourage them to come in, not only were they coming in on time, but while they're doing these, um, while they're, when they're getting the chemo, there's a heart monitor and a blood pressure monitor on them. And we could physically see, as well as the doctors, could physically see that this was, you know, the, the, the patients that had dogs uh, while the, chemo was given were much more relaxed and they were coming in on time and what have you. So they were, that was the beginning of this particular hospital's starting to look at, you know, collecting data on what we were doing to, you know, prove to the medical community that it's, it's more than just cheering the kids up. In other words, they, they were, our benefits were far beyond that. Do you find that that is the attitude of, of most people that are involved in medicine? A kind of a dismissive... 
attitude? Um, yes and no. Uh, some of them uh, did kind of look at us as nothing more than a, a feel-good situation, but I think the, the medical people that actually had pets um, kind of knew before we could generate a- actual data for them that they're that these animals were a benefit. So, and although we we did meet with a little bit of resistance in the beginning, um, the hospitals in the United States um, are set up in departments, and if somebody in if a medical um, person in the department uh, that was in charge did not want the dogs on their floor, they could say no. And in the beginning, we did have two departments that said no. And uh, we didn't argue with them. That's not a place that's going to go anywhere as far as being successful. Um, but we, we just let our dogs um, prove themselves as being valuable. And uh, it took about three years for those two departments to kind of... Um, I don't want to say cave in because they really wanted to see that there wasn't uh, going to be a zoonotic problem, meaning that dogs weren't going to be spreading diseases around and that there was no health risk um, to the patients, uh, meaning we were screening the dogs well enough and the teams well enough that they were not a risk. And so it uh, slowly but surely they all came around. Well, that's great to hear because uh, the other thing you were mentioning there is that you, you started collecting data. So, so what kind of data did you collect and, and what did you find out? Well, actually, the department started collecting data. Um, they were looking at um, uh, some of the children that are post-surgical um, have, a, have a morphine pump for pain. And although there's a threshold on it, they can hit it any time they feel like they need you know, some pain relief. And one of the things they looked at uh, initially with those was that that while the dogs were present, they did a lot less, um, they needed less pain management than when the dogs were not present. Um, uh, what kind of benefits does that give then? It is With morphine, is that something that you you want to minimize essentially? Well, absolutely. You know, the the less you're going to use, the better um, for the person. Um, but what they were looking at more than anything else was that the dogs were um, keeping the children's minds off the pain um, pretty well. In other words, if you're laying in the bed and you don't feel well, all you're going to think about is how bad you feel. <laughs> but if you have something else to do, in this case, interact with a dog, um, then you're not you're not thinking about your 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 physical state as much as you are uh, maybe asking the handler about the dog or watching the dog do some behaviors or you know whatever the team is doing to um, entertain the children as if you were. So so was that tested against like other sources of entertainment? Well, they just looked at it in general to see that did it make a difference, and the answer was yes, it did. But it really it was more um, something they were looking at to uh, measure down the road. In other words, this is kind of anecdotal data collection that might turn into a study uh-huh. um, further down the road, where where somebody's going to get some grant money and actually. You know, put some put some uh, effort into measuring it scientifically. Yeah, it seems to me as well. Like you were saying there that um, you know some people were dismissive in the sense that oh, it's only working because it makes them feel good. You know, like that's like that's yeah. the bad thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But but what was really interesting about the the program when it first started out was that we had um, we got. First off, it's you know it was it was children and dogs, so that's a a no-brainer for news media. If there's a slow news day, there was reporters, you know, in the hospital taking pictures and 
interviewing patients and what have you all the time. And so the, the hospital community learned very quickly about the program, but there were a lot of people involved um, with the hospital that didn't have direct patient care. In other words, uh, they might be in record keeping or something like that, and they didn't actually get to see the dogs. And they wanted to know if they could if they could have dog visits. In other words, could we take the dog into record keeping and, and say hi to the people that work there? And so we took it to the president of the hospital, and he was 100% behind it. He said any place the animals can benefit the, the people within the hospital, be they patients or employees, um, he was all for it. And so we actually opened up the program to um, all the departments. The only, the only place we don't go is, is into the you know, food preparation areas, but every, everywhere else um, the dogs, that the dogs are allowed, they go. I, w- I would imagine that there's actually, I mean, I don't know, this is obviously your area, so, so maybe you can kind of shed some ideas about this, but it seems like dogs are being used more and more for all kinds of purposes that maybe aren't directly about this, but would kind of be relatable, you know, like there's schools that have dogs that they have like, oh, absolutely. Like, the, the whole yeah. prison dog program and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. I've actually, I've actually worked in prison dog programs and in school programs as an adjunct to what we are, what we're doing in the hospital. In other words, um, the, our volunteers, and right now we have uh, about 90 teams uh, in that particular program and um, in order to be in the doggy brigade, which is the name of the program, in order to be a doggy brigader, you have to do uh, so many visits per year, um, and then you also have to do two outside functions, because we have somebody that does nothing but schedule outside functions where different community groups want dogs there, and a lot of them involve uh, special needs children and and school programs and things like that. So our dogs go to a lot of those kinds of programs, and the people that are involved in that kind of uh, intervention start to realize that, you know, if they got their own dogs, um, you know, they could do this on a daily basis. And so we've helped to start uh, quite a few um, outside programs uh, that aren't directly involved with the hospital that we work with um, that now have dog programs going on because the people that are there realized what a benefit the animals can actually be. How does it work in the in the prison dog one? Because I think that that like, is intriguing to a lot of people because <laughs> it's like yeah. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of initial worry that if you're giving dogs to people that may, may be in prison for, say, violent crimes or something, that are they... Well, that, that, that's exactly how I got involved in it. Uh, uh, a local, I don't want to call it local because it was about 100 miles away, uh, a prison in my area had a dog program where the inmates were training shelter dogs to make them more adoptable. And the trainer that they had working with them was using uh, some coercive methods for training dogs. And the last thing they wanted to do was show, you know, prisoners how to use force to get an animal to do what they want them to do. And rather than shut down the program, um, they called me in and asked if I would be interested in showing the, the head trainers, as it were, with this particular group, um, how to train dogs without using force. And I said, sure, and I spent uh, about every other weekend for about three years going down and training um, that the eight guys that were the head trainers how to train dogs by using, you know, clickers and markers and targets and lures and different things like that in order to um, uh, have them then train the inmates to train the dogs. And rather than folding the program, they actually expanded it. And it was kind of cool because when the pro- that program was over with as far as my end of it was, I sat down with these inmates who, you know, had seen both sides of dog training. They had seen the, the, the more coercive type of training and they saw the, 
the nonviolent training, and I asked them which ones did they like better, and of course they said mine. And I and I and I told them not to shine me on. I didn't want to hear that silliness if they didn't believe it. You know, I said, if you liked it better, why did you like it better? And they said that when the dogs came from the shelters, they were a lot like new inmates. They were scared to death to be there. Uh-huh. And uh, they had a, and a lot of them took uh, several weeks to adjust to living with an inmate and going, you know, going in and out of cells and doing all the things that the dogs within their program had to do. But when they changed to using non aversive methods for training them, it took just a couple days. So uh, how does that work? So the dogs are actually staying with the prisoners then? Yes. Uh, they, the, the, this particular prison program, and they're all a little bit different, okay? This particular program used the, the dogs as a, um, as a way of keeping the prisoners in line. In other words, you had to qualify to get in the program. And if you did anything wrong, you were immediately thrown out, and you had to start all over again to try to get back in. And everybody in the institution did something. So if you didn't want to do laundry or cook meals or do something, some maintenance thing within the prison, um, it was a very uh, prestigious job to have to be a trainer. And the other inmates actually looked up to you as some as a special person because you were a trainer. And so um, they, the inmates actually have the dog in the cell with them because they, the dog needs to know how to live side by side with the humans. And so when they, when they get new dogs into this particular program, they're matched up with a trainer immediately who takes them to their cell and takes care of them 24-7. They take them out to go to the bathroom, they feed them, they groom them, they take care of them completely. And they, they also keep a diary of what they're doing with the dog, which includes their training. And whoever adopts that dog gets the diary so they know exactly how the dog's been trained and what they did to um, take the dog from the shelter environment and turn him into a more adoptable pet. So the dog doesn't stay so, with the prisoner for indefinitely then? The- no, no, no. They're, they're typically with the prisoners for somewhere between six and eight weeks. It kind of depends on the dog. It, it, if there's a... Um, they take on some pretty serious problems in that particular prison program because there's a, a couple of trainers in there that I've told them flat out that if they got out and they needed a job in training, I would find them one because they were very, very good trainers. Um, and they really liked working with dogs. Um, wow, so that's they, fantastic. Yeah. So if there was a more serious dog coming from the adoption group that they were getting from, you know, the dog that was marginal as to whether he was adoptable or not, these guys, these top guys would take those dogs on and they, they might have that dog for a few months rather than a few weeks to um, bring them around to uh, make them more adoptable. So how did you get involved in all of the therapy and the intervention stuff? Well, I've always been fascinated with the human-animal bond. In fact, that's how I got into training. You know, I was... I was uh, I was, my wife is a veterinarian, and, and she and I were taking our dogs to nursing homes way before Ken ever decided to be a dog trainer. And, uh, and I, always, I always liked the benefit because we, were, we initially went because we had a relative in the nursing home, but everybody wanted to see the animals that we brought in. And so even though my, you know, our relative passed away, we kept going back. Uh, to that nursing home and, and sharing our pets. And then I found out in about 1983 about a gentleman named Leo Bustad, who was a veterinarian on the West Coast that had formed this human-animal bond uh, scientific group. And uh, they called themselves a Delta Society back then. And I joined that group and got... Uh, got more and more involved in the different things that 
people were trying with dogs. Um, and these were, most of the people that, uh, that were with the Delta Society back then were psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers that were actually using their own animals or animals they knew pretty well um, as, you know, as a, as a therapy animal. So, and so for me, it just blossomed from there. So did you start with dog scent? Because obviously everyone can hear you've, you've got a full menagerie behind you. <laughs> well, actually, when we, when I used to go to the nursing home, we took a couple of dogs and we took a couple of cats and I had a couple of parrots that were pretty, uh, handleable, very friendly birds. Um, I had, I, I still have USDA license for exotic animals, and at the time I had, a, I had a marmoset monkey that loved to go in and visit people. And uh, believe it or not, we had farm animals. I had, uh, I took uh, baby goats in once. Of course, we didn't take them into the facility because they, they poop as they need. Um, but it was kind of interesting for me because I learned more about goats from the older people that were in the nursing home than I ever knew about them myself. Uh, most of these people had grown up on farms, and so they were very much into um, teaching me about the, the hoof stock that I was bringing in to show them. So you already had a, a huge array of animals at this point then? Um, yeah, my wife and I have a small farm here, and although we don't, you know, our, our animals are, are what I like to call pasture ornaments. They just look good out there. We're not selling them. We don't, uh, you know, we don't breed anything. We don't buy or sell animals. Most of our animals are rescues, and uh, when we take them on, we, we fix their problems. Uh, if they're a medical problem, it's hers. If, if it's a behavior problem, it's mine. And once they come around to, you know, accepting people and liking people, then if we can put them into one of these programs that we're involved in, we, we would take them in. And that's kind of that's kind of how we got started into into doing it. Of course, that was, you know, 35 years ago. We progressed quite a bit from that point. I mean, there's so much to talk about as well, because I know that you're also involved with wolves well my uh i have a passion for all animals and uh i have my wife as an undergraduate um was at purdue university which is in in the indiana the next state over from where i live and uh, she became a volunteer at a place called wolf park which is a research facility that studies uh wild canid behavior they have wolves and coyotes and foxes and bison and a few other animals there but I I struck up a relationship with Dr. Klinghammer the the guy that founded Wolf Park he was an ethologist and uh, he introduced me to Ray Coppinger who became dear friends with me and uh, that whole Wolf Park adventure turned into just that an adventure for me um, Dr. Klinghammer allowed me to work and train with uh, his wolves there, which he never did with anybody before, but he was so fascinated with training that didn't involve coercion that uh, he was more than happy to to let me uh, work with the animals. Well, since that time, Wolf Park has also um, hired quite a few people that are very competent trainers um, that have taken what I've done with the animals and and really expanded on it. They can they can do a lot of medical treatments with them without any restraint, and they can um, most of the wolves and foxes and coyotes walk on leash better than most people's dogs do. Um, they can do voluntary blood draws. There's a a lot of things they can do with them because they. They have a they have a method for socializing a very labor intensive method for socializing them. But now they start training with them at a very very young age, literally at weeks of age. And by the time they're ten twelve weeks old, which for a wolf that's they're quite mature at that age. Um, they're not only um, 
pretty well behaved, but they they're pretty well trained uh, as far as you know being able to move them about and being able to 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 move them from one enclosure to another and to even uh, do some demo work with them with the people that come to the park. How come? Obviously, the wolf park take this quite hands-on approach, but it seems contrary to what you see in zoos, where it seems a lot of the time you try not to have any kind of contact with the animals beyond what is necessary. Yeah, yeah I never understood that, you know. And the, the reason I don't is because unless this animal is part of some species survival program where that particular animal is going to be put back into the wild in some in some way then that animal should be afraid of people you don't really want them going up to them and 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 checking them out so to speak but if the animal is going to live in captivity forever and and in most zoos and theme parks that I'm involved with that they're going to be there forever it makes no sense to me to to have to use any kind of coercion to get them to cooperate with you. I mean, we don't, Wolf Park doesn't own a squeeze cage. They don't have a tranquilizer gun. They don't have any of that stuff, and they don't need it. Now, the animals will, will cooperate with them, and there's a certain amount of um, protected contact that you're going to use with some animals under certain conditions um, but the, to tell you the truth, the animal at Wolf Park that have the most protected contact are the bison. You know, I'm I'm more worried about a 2,000 pound bison than I am a 80 pound wolf. That makes a lot of as sense. As far as yeah, as far as what can happen if it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. But we always give them the choice. In other words, the animal. If we ask a wolf, a coyote, whatever, for a blood draw, and they say not interested, we go okay. We'll check back with you later. Um, <laughs> Is that any different to say, like big cats or or gorillas or any of those kind of big animals? I, well, I can't imagine it, that you you know you walk them around on a lead. <laughs> well, <laughs> it depends, and the reason I say that is if they're part of the in the United States, we have the AZPA, the American Association of Zoological Parks and Aquariums. And if you're a member of that organization, they have very strict rules about which animals you can make contact with and physical contact. And animals like gorillas and lions and tigers are what they call a class one animal. And you you may not make um, unrestrained physical contact with them. In other words, you can't put a bait bag on and walk into their enclosure. And in fact, in my reckoning, you would be pretty stupid to do such a thing. Okay, but um, wolves aren't a class one animal. You know, neither are coyotes or or foxes, any of them. Why is that? Because you'd think that a wolf is is pretty dangerous if it wants to be. They're they're really not. It really has to do with how social are they. You know, the wolf park spends an inordinately large amount of time. We're talking thousands of man hours in the first months of their life getting them to realize that humans are not dangerous mm. and, and although they're neophobic they're afraid of novel stimulus and you'll never ever get that to stop happening that's just part of being a wild animal okay what well, what we look at with them is is what we call bounce back which means when they have that startle response to something that's new in their environment how fast do they get over it and for people, you know, their ability to recover from a person that they may be afraid of is usually just a couple of minutes. You know, I've seen them more afraid of a new tree in their enclosure than I've seen them be afraid of a volunteer or of an intern that's going to help take care of them. Yeah, that's interesting to me because I think I don't know. I'm talking now with no experience at all. <laughs> um, but like, I thought I'd read about historically wolves killing quite a lot of people in the past. Not uh, yeah. not talking about modern times, but yeah. Well, I you know, there's all kinds of stories and 
and and what have you about wolves and people, but wolves have typically never looked at people as a food source. Is it kind of you know, a meaning resort? that probably? I'm not saying that it's it would never happen or that it has never happened, but they really don't. There's only a few animals on the face of the earth that actually think we taste pretty good, and and wolves aren't one of them. Uh-huh. So you. You could get bit by one, and you could probably get hurt by one, especially if it was trapped and and it could not get away from you. But the average wolf in the wild, if it if it could get away from you, it would do. It would take that. Hmm. And for them to to stalk you, to look at you as food, you know, and physically hunt you down is highly, highly unlikely. How do you feel about animals that are trained for like movie sets and stuff? That's one situation where you do see these big animals trained yeah well it with uh, contact fortunately for us they can do a lot with blue screens now Uh so they can make it look like the animals actually next to the actor without them being there yeah because i and and i'm i'm much happier with that because it, it really depended on what animal and on what movie you know how they they trained the animal or how they made that happen uh-huh. and there's been a history of people not being very good with animals on movie sets more than there's been a history of them being really good with the animals yeah so and, and you're just talking from like a safety perspective here i assume yeah a lot of it has to do with safety if you're going to have a bear or something like that on a movie set they would put a hot wire around the ground so the bear couldn't escape and and that would make it What's that would wire? change it's an electrical wire that's you know above the ground a few feet and if the animal touches it they get nailed pretty severely oh wow and if they and just that stand would on keep, it you mean if they touch it in any way they would get it oh so it's like a so fishing would, line it's just like very unseeable it, yeah, but while the animal knows where it is, they would keep it off camera. Uh, but it, they typically would do that to to keep the animal um, in the in the scene where the camera is going to shoot. And a lot of times, there's stunt people or there's trainers that are actually working with the animal and not necessarily an actor. You know, somebody that's a high dollar figure. Um, but that's a that's not an environment number one I'm comfortable with I, I I wouldn't get involved in that um, but I have done work with animals um, with a with a with a blue screen background where they're going to take that animal's image and superimpose it in a different environment so I the animal and I who are training together aren't anywhere near a movie set at all. You know, we're just shooting, you know, we're getting A to B behaviors, go from point A to point B and do something, you know, be it, you know, growl or snarl or, you know, look around or stalk or whatever. And then we can take that video and let some person with more skill than me, you know, put it on um, a movie set to make it look like the animal's actually there so have when you, they're really not. Have you trained uh, bears and big cats and that kind of thing? Uh, I'm not a huge fan of working with bears. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Um, well, I like bears. It's just not an animal that I I know very well. And for me, you know, the animals that I work with right now, I, I understand their body language and their behaviors pretty well. So I can tell you that this coyote is real comfortable with me or this fox is real happy or this wolf is real content but I'm not very good at reading bears. So because I'm not, I would not be comfortable uh, being in a, in a free contact environment with them um, without somebody there that knows the animal better than me. Hmm. It seems like, yeah. well, going on what we were just saying, maybe you wouldn't recommend that anyway, I assume. Um, or a bad exception I actually know people that train bears that are very, very good with them. You know, it's just that's not me. You know, I, I, 
I kind of, even the bison at Wolf Park, I mean, I, I like bison, but they're so big. Yeah. And they're so enormously powerful, but I, I don't, they, they could hurt you without meaning to do that. Mm. You know, and, and wolves, for the most part, if they hurt you, they meant to do it. There, there wasn't an accident. You know, and, and I've never had that happen, by the way. You know, I've never had a, I've probably trained with 40, 50 wolves, and I've never had one ever hurt me in any way. But it's because I work on a relationship first, and and then we work on behavior. So what kind of things are you training them? Well, mostly husbandry behaviors, you know, so we can take care of them. You know, everything from, you know, um, letting us do your nails, you know, um, wolves don't just like dogs. Wolves don't like to be restrained. They don't like you to hold their foot in order to do their nails. So at Wolf Park, we've trained the wolves to put their foot on top of a like an orb. It's like a half ball on a stick, and that gives us access to their nails. So we can use a Dremel or trim their nails, and there's nobody restraining them. And if they want to take their foot off the off the pedestal, so to speak. That's their way of saying, I'm not interested in letting you do this. And we can also, we have access to the cephalic vein that, from that position. You know, there's a lot of things we can do. So the, 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 the staff at Wolf Park, and it's not Ken that's doing this, by the way, <laughs> but the staff at Wolf Park is working on this kind of stuff all the time to come up with better ways and easier ways to get the animals to cooperate with us so that we can take care of them, so that we can move them, so that we can safely interact with them so that they don't have to, you know, they're, they're social creatures. They, they don't do well by themselves at all. Well, don't, you, and although, don't you do um, and, courses for animal trainers as well at the Wolf Park? Well, we we have we have quite a few courses where people can make can go in with the animals, but we only have one course right now where they we let people train with them. Uh -huh. um, but those are that's that's a, it's a workshop that goes on for three days, and we let um, we kind of screen the people to make sure they have the chops to be able to do it. Um, you, it's not a matter of, I know how to use a clicker, let's say. It's really more of a matter of you're a good lateral thinker. So if you go in there with uh, plan A in your head on how you're going to get this to happen and it's not happening, you can, you also have plan B and plan C in your head as well. You can run fast. So that, well... <laughs> Not so much run fast, because that, that, that wouldn't be advisable either. Um, but you have to be able to shift gears. If the animal's not doing it the way you, you, you would like them to do it, there's more than one way to get the animal to do the behavior that you want them to do. So you've got to have a, you know, kind of a mindset that you have more than one way to get the animal to let's say present their paw and if they the way that you'd like them to do it isn't working you can come up with plan b without having to end the exercise leave the enclosure and then try to come back and do it later so you, you got to kind of have a little bit of behavioral chops where you can do some lateral thinking um you know in real time and not have to necessarily constantly go back and, and remap what it is you're doing. Well, what are the major differences that you find between, say, dogs and wolves when it comes to training? Oh, man. <laughs> We've dumbed down wolves so that they'll live with us, and we call those dogs. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, wolves don't have... Um, they don't have this uh, thank you so much for feeding me attitude. <laughs> You know, I mean, when you put their food down in front of them, it's almost like they're saying, well, isn't this convenient? I guess I don't have to kill anything today, as opposed to thank you for feeding me. Really? Even with the ones that you've raised? Yes, absolutely. And 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 they never they never stop testing the environment. They never they never are satisfied with that's the way it is. 
They're constantly um, measuring everything. If you change anything in their enclosure, they're going to mess with it. If you change, if you put a new gate on their enclosure, they're going to mess with it. If you put a new tree in their enclosure, they're going to mess with it. You know, they they might be afraid of it first, but as soon as they're no longer afraid of it, they're going to want to know how does it work. You know, can I manipulate this? Can I make this work? Um, in some way for me. And, and they do the same thing with the, with keepers and with the people that take care of them. And the, and the people that take, take care of them, they know that. Uh, they, they know the animals are constantly manipulating us to see if, you know, they can make us, I don't know, vend food faster or perform in a, a different manner. So it isn't a matter of us going in there and training them you know, we're going in there with the hopes that we're training them, and they don't train us too much. Have you ever felt in danger when you're working with any of these big animals? Not in danger, but I've felt a few times that I was losing control of the training scenario. In other words, the animal was training me, I wasn't training them. And I had to think... Uh, the coyotes are better at this than anything that at Wolf Park that I've worked with. The coyotes are constantly, constantly messing with you. <laughs> and and I, I, there were a few times where I had to kind of take a breath and start over with them because they were taking me down the road of what they wanted me to do rather than me taking them down a road of them doing something for me. Well, what kind of thing has happened? Well, I always work with the two. There were two coyotes um, until June. We lost one of them. Uh, there were always two coyotes, Twister and Willow, and I always trained them together. I never, we never separated them. They they didn't do well if they weren't together. And so, they tag teamed all the time. You know, I would be working with Twister, and Willow would be behind me trying to figure out how to steal the bait bag. You know, I mean. They were constantly messing with me, and I had to always know where they were and what they were doing. You know, and 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 I enjoyed it. By the way, it wasn't like I felt threatened. I didn't. Um, but I, it was a brain drain. I I was good for about a half an hour with the coyotes, and then I needed a break. Yeah. <laughs> I needed to go out and let my glial cells, you know, reju rejuvenate my neurons because I had just. I was mentally exhausted. Obviously, we're. I think most people listening to this are going to be familiar with dogs and training them, and you know, we know what to expect when it comes to dogs. But with these other right. with these other animals, um, in terms of intelligence, then, it, if you, what what kind of differences would you see there? Are wolves much more intelligent than dogs, or they're less intelligent? Or uh, same thing with coyotes uh, and bisons and all these different with, animals. With, with, what you're looking at with selective breeding with dogs, and, and you've kind of talked about this in a couple of your lectures, um, is that we selectively bred them for one or two behaviors in the prey killing sequence. So they may have chase and they might have grab bite, but they don't have stalk and they don't have, you know, dissect. Or, well, they all have dissect, but they may not have cash. You know, they may not have those other behaviors. And so when those... When those genetically hardwired behaviors are not in their repertoire, they either have to learn them or they're just not there. And when you're dealing with a wolf or a coyote or a fox, all those behaviors are there, all of them. And they can access any one of them anytime they want to. And so the what you might call the um, foundation behaviors, you know, what you can start with, what you can begin with, um, are, are much more robust. You have more things you can start doing with the animal that aren't necessarily something you would find in a dog. Uh -huh. So if you, had, if you had a pointer or you had a hound, you know, you can assume that their nose is going to be on the ground or they're going to be using their eyes. With a wolf, it could be Anything, you know, <laughs> anything in that perspective. They could be using their eyes, but they could be using their nose. They could be using their ears. They could be 
further down the sequence and they're actually uh, you're looking at something off in the horizon and and they're and it's got their focus you know completely until that until it's out of their focus you don't even exist mm. you know so it's uh, it's a little more um, it's a little busier environment for a trainer yeah absolutely like and also from what I've read as well it seems like wolves are better at things that maybe don't involve people like puzzle solving and all of that kind of stuff but, oh yeah whereas dogs have this habit of looking to the person for what, what am I supposed to do <laughs> exactly and, and and I think we made them that way number one um, we like them that way you know that was it's helpful, part of the right well yeah well I think it was the whole design behind domestication whether it happened through uh, selective breeding which some people believe or it happened on its own which other people believe it still happened and that selective breeding for specific parts of the behavior of the prey killing sequence um, really drastically changed the animal and then if you physically change how they look and how their ability to move and how fast they can run and whatever by shortening their legs and you know making them brachycephalic or whatever you know you start to alter the, the physiology of the animal now you have a you have a completely different animal compared to the wild prototype that's still out there you mentioned that you were friends with ray coppinger who is obviously a real legend in the dog world what, what was yes. he like to be friends with Oh my God! It was an honor. <laughs> uh, I met Ray back in the 1980s, and we became friends very, very quickly. And um, he thoroughly enjoyed watching me train animals, and I thoroughly enjoyed having him teach me uh, about ethology and about the the biology and of of behavior. And uh, for about 20 years. Uh, I got the privilege of lecturing with him anytime he needed a dog trainer. Um, when he went to speak to dog training groups, they always ask him a bunch of questions about training, and that that's not his forte, although he would tell you that he couldn't train a dog to pay attention. That's not necessarily true, um, but he would always point to me. So he liked to have somebody there that was a trainer so that when people came up with the training questions he could he could he could hand it off but what was great for me is that in the time that I got to spend with him he kind of spoon-fed me a graduate course in ethology so that I really understood the 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 intrinsic behaviors the the hardwired behaviors and he he not only got me to think about them but he got me completely fascinated with them and then I discovered in the, the middle 90s that they're all hooked to neurobiology and neurochemistry and and that's where I've been for the last 20 years is trying to wrap my head around the neurology you know of why these motor patterns and these these intrinsic behaviors how do they work you know uh, what they, what, why would the animal want to do that behavior I remember when I listened to uh, Ray Coppin one of Ray Coppinger's talks, uh, someone asked him a training uh, question, and he just said, get a new dog, <laughs> which just made, made me laugh so much. Yeah, It seemed like he had yeah. a real sense of humor about that kind of stuff. Uh, he, Ray was hilarious. I mean, I, he, didn't like to, he didn't like to fly if he didn't have to, and so I spent a lot of time in a car with him driving to different places, and I mean sometimes for days and we had you know I, I could tell you a million Ray Coppinger stories but he had something that I absolutely loved that he would do with people that ask him questions that were um, way beyond the, the questioners understanding in, in other words they don't have enough background information to really understand the answer to that question that they're posing so when he would get one of these really profound questions, he would look at them and he'd say, do you want the long answer or the short answer? And people invariably will always say the short answer. 
And when they would say the short answer, he'd go, I don't know. And, and, he, and he would know, okay? But he, he knows that the person who's asking the question doesn't have the background information to answer the question. Uh-huh. So I was the guy that when I got back to the hotel room, I'd, get, I'd ask him the question. You know, because I I want I want the information. I I have that background information. I want to know, and he would and he would share that information with me, usually over a, a gin and tonic. But um, but he would always he would always expand my mind with that kind of information. And and for me, it was a, a total pleasure to have somebody like him to not only call my friend, but to have him as a mentor to coach me along in trying to better understand our animals yeah he's yeah he, he like i said you know when i first when i brought him up he, he's definitely one of those people that you know he's going to be remembered he's a, a really legendary figure in in the dog world and, and like i said absolutely watching him talk was was so funny he definitely had such a sense of humor which i think might have i'm a, i'm guessing i think a lot of people might not have been able to uh find that funny but i i thought it was hilarious well, he, he's, he's not a lecturer he's a performer uh-huh. i mean when he got when he got up in front of a group man he was a performer i mean he, he he there was a certain amount of information he wanted them to get but he had a a, a couple dozen ways he could go about it and i I've, I've watched him explain the same thing to different audiences in different ways and i really I really got to appreciate how what a genius he really was um, by watching him do that. I mean, he was. You said he was funny. That, when you, funny when you were driving around. Were you driving? He's hilarious. He is hilarious. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was almost like I would tell my wife, "I'm I'm heading off with Ray Coppinger," and she'd say. When are you going to be back? And I say, I don't know, sometime this month. You so, know, so were because, you driving across the country? Um, a lot of times he lived in Massachusetts, and a lot of times he was heading to the Midwest, and so he would head through Ohio and pick me up, and then we would go to, um, you know, Wolf Park, whatever. I mean, we we went to Texas together once. I mean, it was five days in a car, and when we were done with the lecture we did down there, he took me up to Coryell County and introduced me to the people that he left livestock guarding dogs with 30 years ago. And that was a real pleasure for me to see um, what his livestock guarding dog project had turned into um, after he had planted that seed in that particular area. Those people, by the way, they they worshipped him. He was like a god because he gave them a way to save their stock from from coyotes and it was it was so easy and so inexpensive they couldn't believe it just just based on breeding selective breeding the right dog um raised the right way in the right environment and that was it i mean we i probably talked to at least a dozen different ranchers out there and a lot of times the rancher that he talked to was either retired or dead you know, because that was back in the 60s, and this was the 90s, actually early 2000s. And it was their sons or their grandsons that were running these ranches. And he would always ask them, so how many how many uh, animals are you losing to predation? And one right after another was zero, 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 zero. They were even telling us if an animal dropped dead in the field, the coyotes couldn't even come and get it because the livestock guarding dogs wouldn't let them. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? It was, and he did. He he pretty much did that all by himself. He found, he went to Europe. He studied the dogs. He found the dogs. He brought them back. He introduced them. He pretty much did that. He and his and his students at uh, Hampshire College uh, put that all together all by themselves. I got the impression, even when I was hearing him speak, that he he'd bred a lot of dogs. Uh, he he actually a lot of people don't know that, but he was a champion musher, and he had sled dogs, and we're talking fifty, sixty sled dogs uh, when he was mushing, and then he went to livestock guarding dogs, and he and he was breeding uh, Italian marimas, 
um, at the same time that he would still had sled dogs. So uh, his farm in, in uh, Massachusetts probably had 100, 150 dogs on it. It's incredible, isn't it? He's an amazing man. So, so and it, and his amazing wife. I should I should not I should not uh, shortchange Lorna at all. She she was his uh, his right hand and uh, absolutely his uh, assistant in everything he did. So, uh, so, in terms of where people can find you and uh, and what they can uh, uh, go go and see of your stuff, you're, you're in the UK pretty soon, aren't you? For Woof? Yeah, yeah, I'm coming up for Woof. Uh, you know, Shirag's invited me up. Where I'm pretty good friends with Shirag, and uh, actually, some quite a few of the speakers are going to be at Woof for friends of mine, and the other ones I certainly want to meet. Um, I'm getting to be a little more known in Europe than I was before. I do a lot of work in the United States. I've been uh, to Japan for uh, quite a bit. I'm going to Australia in the fall. Um, so I'm I'm kind of I'm one of those hit or miss guys. I don't have a book out yet. Uh, when I say yet, I've tried writing one. I'm not a writer, so someday I'll do it. Uh, but right now, it's really a matter of finding me on Facebook or something like that and, and finding out where I am. Okay, you don't have a website or anything that uh, you want? It's pretty obscure. I really don't get clients or anything else through a website. Most of the time when somebody's looking for me, they're looking for me. And uh, not for just a trainer, they're looking for me specifically. And in that respect, I'm not hard to find. I'm the only Ken McCord in Doylestown, Ohio, anywhere in the United States. <laughs> Uh, but it's still, um, you know, the best the best uh, way for your listeners to, if they want to see me or meet me, would be to come to Wolf. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in February, because I'm I'm going to be there for the entire adventure. I'm not. Uh, I will be very accessible. I'm not one of those guys that hides in a hotel room. I love to meet people. I love to talk, and so um, that would be the best way to do it. And, of course, Nancy is there as well, who's also been on the podcast. And a friend, and I'm looking forward to spending time with her again, too. Yeah, so uh, that would certainly be uh, be worth going to, I'm sure. That would be, uh, be a lot. Yeah. Well, Steve White's coming, and Laura Hogg's coming, and those are all friends of mine. So it's going to be it's gonna be a family reunion in Europe, and uh, and hopefully we'll have a really good time with the audiences there as well. Yeah, those those uh, big expos are always great, and and like you said, you know, you get a chance to kind of meet up with people and get to know people a bit more, it, it, especially in the intervals, right, when people are eating and when people are kind of just hanging around. Yep, a bit more that's available the, to talk. The, those times are often more fun than the lectures. I I really look forward to that. So, what are you talking on at Woof? At Wolf, I'm talking about animal-assisted activity and inter- and uh, and interventions, and so it's kind of going to be a synopsis. I'm going to go more into what behaviors um, are necessary for both of those avenues, both uh, activity and therapy. You know what the dog should know. So if people are going to go to trainers to hopefully train their dog to do that kind of uh, of activity that they'll have a, a knowledge up front of you know the of what behaviors uh, tend to help out the most for these kind of environments. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on, King. The the thing, the dilemma that we have in doing this podcast is you're one of those people that doesn't necessarily have one thing. You know, you've done so much stuff that you know we could probably do three or four podcasts. <laughs> Well, I'd be all for it if you want to. We could, we could spend the whole podcast talking about wolves if you want to. Well, yeah, we definitely have to do it again sometime. And, uh, yeah, talk about one of the other million things that uh, we could talk about. That would be great, Nick. I appreciate it. Hey guys, before you go, just a couple of reminders. Remember that you can get my engagement guide as a free guide to how to get your dog engaged with you. That means, you know, if you've got a dog that runs off 
or doesn't really pay any attention to you on walks, or maybe you're just struggling to kind of form any relationship with them, then that's going to be something that is really, really useful for you. That's something I do with pretty much all of my clients when we start out. So you can get that for free. Just go to www.barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide and you will be signed up to my email list as well but my emails are cool so don't worry about that i'm not going to be spamming the hell out of you uh it's all good stuff and you can unsubscribe at any time and i won't be unoffended i won't be offended by that so yeah no worries um the other thing is if you haven't already joined us on the facebook group then what the hell are you doing that's that's a that group is really coming on actually is is really becoming enjoyable and also We've just had so many really good, deep conversations about things that have gone on in the podcast. You know, after the Sarah Owings episode, we, uh, John McGuire, this is it. This is the thing as well, because, you know, the podcast uh, guests get invited to that group. So you just end up with just such a high caliber of discussion. So, you know, John McGuigan started a post uh, talking about um, talking about choice. And, you know, you have people like Eric Brad, Eileen, Anderson, Sarah, um, I'm probably missing out names. I can't think. Joe Rosie Haffenden. You know, like we had such a incredible discussion about choice after that podcast, and yeah, you're you're really missing out if you're not part of that group. So to join that group, just search on Facebook for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. Request to join, and I can accept you. And of course. This podcast is sponsored by Butternut Box. Butternut Box are a really cool company. Just everyone that is that works for Butternut Box just is really cool. <laughs> they're just, uh, you know, they're really easy to deal with. Um, everyone's just been so nice, you know. It's, it's not a, a old school company. It's, it's a really um, new, thriving company. You know, they really have the dogs at heart which is shown in the reviews that they've got, you know, it's, it's shown in the review as well from All About Dog Food, which are uh, independent review site. They have a five-star rating, which is pretty impressive. And also one of the unique selling points, I guess, of butternut boxes, it's really great for dogs that are fussy eaters or have sens- sensitive stomachs. And we certainly found that with uh, one of our little dogs, Pablo. He he was picky on raw um, but he he loves butternut box, so yeah, uh, well worth checking out. You can get a seventy five percent discount on your first box by going to butternutbox.com slash Nick Benger. So that's definitely worth doing. Try them out. Um, I don't think you'll be disappointed. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. See ya.